So our, our texts this morning are two, and uh, one of them is going to be in the New King James, that's up on the board, and the other one I'm just going to do in the ESV, because switching Bibles in the middle is so convenient. But uh, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then the second one from Romans 11, verses 1 through 12. I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So then, or so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches to the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us King Jesus, and that we would see unfolded in your word your marvelous purposes and power. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Well, we spent the last two weeks studying the concept of our inheritance out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. And uh, we've got one more sermon on this passage to go uh, next week, and then we'll move on. Two weeks ago, we learned that we who are in Christ will receive an inheritance that is almost too good to be true. And all that we long for and all that we dream of and all that we are even willing to sin in order to obtain in this life will be ours freely and fully 
and forever. Last week, we explored the implications of what Paul says here and in other places about the purposes of this loving, predestining God where it concerns our inheritance. And we discovered that God is actively working out not a few things, but all things, great and small, in order to bring about our possession of our treasured inheritance. And this means that everything which has been created and all the unfoldings of natural history and of human history and all the activities of angels and all the activities of demons are under God's direct power and control and they all serve his purposes. And one of his main stated goals, which he shares with us in scripture, is the redemption of a special treasured people who will exist with him in bliss forever, praising his glorious grace. Now, whatever other goals he might have, which he hasn't revealed, the redemption of this treasured people is his main stated goal. It is the point of history. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children after us. But there are other things that God has revealed about this treasured people, and he has given us a broad picture of who it is who makes up the treasured people. Now, this is very important for us to understand as American evangelical Christians because there is a very widespread but also a very broken theological system, a grid, a lens through which people read the scriptures called dispensationalism. And most American Christians just sort of imbibe dispensationalist principles from their churches and from popular Christian books and radio programs. I know I was steeped in it uh, as a brand new Christian, as I'm sure most of you were. And the reason it's so widespread is kind of a historical accident. You see, it was invented in England in the middle of the 1800s by a group and one particular teacher within this group who we'll talk about in a minute, but the group was called the Plymouth Brethren. And they kind of were a new thing that came together in the middle 1800s. And they ended up becoming, some of them at least, very cult-like and very exclusive. They really believed, at least some of them did, that, the, the, that they were a, a kind of restoration of the true church, which had disappeared not long after the apostles and had only reappeared with them. And there are other groups both on both sides of the Atlantic that kind of hold to that theology. We're the restoration of the true Christian church. Everything has been lost until we came along in the middle of the 1800s. And this is another one of these groups. And they really, some of them really believe that they are the only true Christians. And so they won't worship or pray with other evangelical Christians because we're not saved and we're in error. So they're very kind of cult-like and exclusivistic. And this particular system called dispensationalism, this way of reading the scriptures, was invented by a guy named John Nelson Darby. And Darby was a very controlling and a very divisive individual, even among his own religious people, the Plymouth Brethren. And Darby was also quite forthright in saying that he had stumbled upon something or invented something that nobody else had ever thought of. So if you have any kind of sense of the historic norms of Christianity, this ought to be ringing every alarm bell in your head that someone would come along and say, we're the restoration of the true church and I've got something special here that nobody else has thought of. 
That, it's just a bad idea, right? Usually those guys are nuts. And, uh, but Darby did at least hold to the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. And dispensationalist theology was imported to America on purpose, and it was popularized by a reference Bible, a Bible with notes in it, you've probably heard of it, called the Schofield Reference Bible. And it had lots of notes and lots of articles in it. There was also a, a group of people and there were newsletters and monthly magazines and, and there were meetings in the summer, you know, uh, where they'd all go to someplace in upstate New York or whatever and have a conference. And the reason it caught on here was because at exactly the same time, the mainline churches were abandoning the authority of the Bible. Because professors in the seminaries no longer believed the Bible. They thought that the Bible had been proved by archeology span and all these other sciences to be um, basically very defective. And uh, they, they didn't like the ideas of human sinfulness, of hell, of the need of a substitutionary atonement on the cross and the Son of God. They didn't like the idea of Jesus being divine. What they liked was ethics. They wanted everybody to be nice to each other. We're all nice people. We just need a little moral uplift once a week on Sunday morning, and then we'll go out and we'll just do wonderful things in the world, and everything will be grand. They didn't like the idea. Sin is located not in the individual human heart necessarily, but in social structures and systems and things like that. And this, this system, uh, this arid heresy, was called theological liberalism. And it spread through all the seminaries of all the major denominations like gangrene. And in the history of this church, in the 80s, brave and godly men and women worked to pull us out of a denomination that was infested with uh, theological liberalism and to bring us into one that wasn't. But those denominations that weren't didn't exist back then. There was just Presbyterianism or Episcopalianism or Methodism or whatever. And so this, this system spreads through the seminaries and then the, t the, preacher, the teachers in the seminaries train the ministers in this stuff. And, and I gotta tell you, as one who went to a seminary that was completely dominated by liberal theology, you walk in there and they start telling you that everything you thought was true isn't true on the authority of great modern scholarship. And it turns you upside down. It, it is like vertigo. It's very, very hard to fight. And uh, it was a multiple year long struggle for me to keep my balance in the middle of that. And I think it was only because God is good and I'm stubborn that I was able to do it, honestly. And so by the 1920s, for instance, in the Presbyterian Church, we were ordaining men to be ministers who didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, who didn't believe in the virgin birth, who didn't believe in the resurrection. And so Christianity was reconfigured from a religion that is primarily about transforming individual lives and saving individual souls into a religion that was primarily about trying to fix social problems. And they really weren't that successful in fixing the social problems. Most of those social problems we have with us today are even worse after 100 plus years of trying. Well, if you're a godly, lively Christian and you're sitting in the pew of a church 
under a pastor who is preaching liberal theology, you are being starved to death spiritually. And so what do you do? Well, along comes the Schofield Reference Bible and popular authors and speakers and magazines and conferences where the word of God is taught and believed, however imperfectly it's taught, and with gratitude, you go there. You go there with enthusiasm and gratitude because at least here is the Bible being taught. But it's kind of a happy meal version of the Bible. And uh, you can, you know, a happy meal and a shake may save your life if you're starving, but let's not pretend it's nutritious, healthy food. It's also important to note that dispensationalism has been over the century, over the century, last century, it's been politely criticized by other Christians, sometimes not so politely, and its own adherents, at least the the more scholarly ones, have reworked it several times to address some of its most profound errors. So it's not as bad today as it used to be, but its foundational assumptions, I think, are still wrong. And at some point, you try and quit propping up a tottering wall and you just tear it down and rebuild it right. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is just tear it down and rebuild it right today if you're influenced by this. Now, what are the main problems with dispensationalism? Well, there are three main ones, and they lead to all sorts of other problems. The first assumption is that they divide up history in such a way that God saved people through different means in different eras. So, for instance, the old dispensationalists would say that in the Old Testament, or at least in, from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, that the people were saved by the keeping of the law and the performing of the sacrifices. Whereas now we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So there's multiple different ways throughout history to be saved. It's their first assumption. Secondly, their second assumption that's problematic, they argue that the Jews are always a separate people with a whole separate economy of salvation and they will always be a separate people with a whole separate economy of salvation and ultimately a separate destiny. Thirdly, as a consequence of those two beliefs, many dispensationalists believe that large parts of the Bible aren't for us as Gentile Christians. We really can't profit from the whole Old Testament, for instance. I mean, it's fun to read as a historical document maybe if you're into that, but but it's not the word of God to you. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, they would say, is not the word of God to you. That was the the gospel that was supposed to be preached to the Jews. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And when when, when the Jews rejected Jesus, well, then we had to have a different gospel, the gospel of grace. So if you ever talk to somebody in a bookstore and they start telling you about the gospel of the kingdom is different from the gospel of grace, just run the other way. Just go the other way. Because they're crazy. There's only one gospel. There always ever was only one gospel. So they would say that all we really need as Christians is the gospel of Luke, maybe the gospel of of John, um, the letters of Paul and the book of Acts, and Revelation. That's that's the only thing that's in our Bible that's for us. And the rest of it is not for us. And they're they're fixated on the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, many dispensationalists teach that Jesus came to the Jews, and if they had accepted him as Messiah, that would have been the end of the world, but they rejected him and they crucified him instead, and so turning to the Gentiles and the creation of the church was God's plan B. 
But God will get things back on track one day with the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the sacrifices and all of that at the end of days. And so you, you see a lot of people spending a lot of time talking about when's the temple going to be rebuilt and blood moons and spotted heifers and all these just crazy stuff. And they're really into that because they think all those things have to happen before Jesus can come back. And by the way, dispensationalists also think, and I think this is one of their most problematic things, that, that at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennium, that glorified saints will join Satan in rebellion against God. So apparently, not only can, could you lose your salvation on earth, you could lose your salvation from heaven, according to them. You can end up in the lake of fire with Satan after reigning with Christ for a thousand years on earth. Well, the, the Presbyterian and Reformed understanding of these things is much simpler, and it's, and it's just easier, and it's often called covenant theology. And here's the, the points that we would hold. Number one, history certainly has many notable events and turning points, but salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this was true even before Christ was born. So throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament speaks to, points to Christ. And there was enough of Christ in the understanding of the people that they turned to him, even though they may not have understood that that was what they were doing. And we see immediately after the fall that God proclaims the gospel to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, God turns to the serpent and he curses him and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, singular, and he, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's not talking about all the offspring of the woman. It's talking about one particular one, Christ and if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Jesus is praying in the garden and Satan is there talking to him, he's tempting him, he's attacking him, and that snake, that white python, comes crawling out from between Satan's feet towards Jesus. And at the end of his prayer, Jesus finishes praying and he stands up and he has this look of resolution on his face. And what does he do? He crushes the head of that serpent with his heel. I remember I saw that. I was, I was with my dad who doesn't understand these things yet. And I was like, oh, that was good. He was like, why? And so I explained to him, that Genesis, that's Genesis 3.15 right there. Here's the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the one to which all the hopes of the Old Testament are pointing. And, and that was Mel Gibson's way. That's not in the Bible, but that was Mel Gibson's way of referring back to Genesis 3.15, which scholars call the proto-evangelion, or the first or primitive proclamation of the gospel. And so Adam was saved by grace through faith in the seed of the woman. Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced in it. He was saved by grace through faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter six and seven. Moses was saved by grace through faith. David was saved by grace through faith. And so was Isaiah. They were all saved by grace through faith in Christ who was to come. And what we need to understand is that time is not a problem for God. 
In the time of Moses, God could look forward to the crucified Messiah and his work and apply that work backwards to them in the same way that we who live after that event can have the work of Christ applied to us. Time isn't a problem for God. One of the most interesting things, I think I haven't been spending time studying this, but in the book of Revelation, John turns around and he sees a lamb crucified from before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't know what all that means because we know that the lamb was crucified in 33 AD on a hill outside of Jerusalem. But in the heavenlies where time is something different than time here, he was crucified from before the foundation of the world for the sins of his people. So we've got to be very careful about putting limits on what God can and can't do because he can do whatever he wants and purposes to do. That's the first point. History is one long, unbroken story of God's redemption of his people by Jesus Christ. The second point is this. The Jews were indeed a separate people with a special destiny. They were chosen by God to bring the Messiah into the world so that God's promise to Abraham that he made in Genesis 12, 3 could be fulfilled. When God said to Abraham, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. That was about Christ. Abraham, your seed will be the one who blesses all the families of the world. I have blessed you to be a blessing, not only for yourself and those who are related to you directly, but ultimately for the whole world. God's plan was always, though, to save a people, not only from among the Jews, but also from all the other people groups in the world. And the death of Christ and the church were not plan B. They were always plan A. And as part of that plan, God counts his elect who have the faith of Abraham to be the true children of Abraham. That was the call to worship this morning. Who are the ones who were the children of Abraham? Because that was what the Jews were saying to Jesus, right? Hey, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, don't say that. If you had Abraham as your father, you'd have the faith of Abraham. And I tell you the truth, that God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Well, guess what? Guess who the stones are? Us. We're the children of Abraham. Why? Because we have the faith of Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we are the inheritors of the promises that God made to the patriarchs and that God made through the prophets, and that God made in the Psalms, as well as the promises that Jesus made in the Gospels and that the writers of the New Testament made in the letters and the epistles. All those promises are ours in Christ. So so then the whole Bible is ours. That's the third point. Not just parts of it that we think are relevant for the day. The whole Bible is ours. Now we need to understand it correctly, but the whole Bible is ours and the promises that are made to Israel in the Old Testament have application to us. That means that we are part of spiritual Israel along with God's elect from every era. We are Abraham's children. You remember that, that children's song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm not Jewish, so this doesn't apply to me. So let's just praise the Lord. No, it doesn't say that, does it? 
And I am one of them, and so are you. And I used to, when I was in the thrall of dispensational theology, I was like, why are we singing this song? I'm not Jewish. I'm not a, a son of Abraham. I am by faith. I am by adoption. I am by the secret electing purposes of God. We are Abraham's children. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 and 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, how in the world did I get here from today's passage? Well, let me explain that to you. Ephesians, as a letter in history written to a group of people, was written during a time that it was transitional. It's a transitional period in history. In the days immediately after Pentecost, which is described in Acts 2, the church grew tremendously. Thousands upon thousands of people believed savingly on Jesus and were baptized and were incorporated into the church and were being taught and worshipped by the apostles. I'm sorry, they weren't worshipped by the apostles. They were being taught by the apostles and they worshipped Jesus. And all of them were Jewish. 100%. That seemed to be the expectation of the leadership of the early church itself. We're about bringing Jesus to the Jewish people. And, and the church, in their minds, in the beginning, was just another Jewish thing that God was doing because God did things basically through the Jews. That was their whole history. The Jews were, were who God dealt with on earth. And so they didn't expect that to change. And when Jesus told them, you're going to be my witnesses to, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, I think they probably assumed, well, there are Jews living in all those places. And we'll carry the gospel to those Jews, and they'll get saved by Jesus, and it'll be this wonderful Jewish thing. And God had other plans. Because along comes a guy named Cornelius, who was a God-fearing Roman. Now, in those days, to be a God-fearer was a Gentile who worshipped God, who would attend synagogue, but he didn't want to go the whole way and get circumcised, which you can hardly blame him, right? And, and so they were God-fearers. And they loved God and they loved his people. They often built synagogues and things like that because they were quite wealthy. And here's this man, Cornelius, this God-fearing Roman, this Italian, who was saved. We find that in Acts 10. And, and initially people are like, to Peter, who went and did it, who, who preached the gospel to him, they were not happy with him. What are you doing going to eat with the Gentiles? Because this is a Jewish thing, Peter. And Peter says, wait, <laughs> I started preaching the gospel in response to a vision. And they all got the Holy Spirit just like we did. And it's like, okay, if God's baptized them with the Spirit, we sure can't withhold water baptism from us. And the church said, whoa. And they rejoiced because they saw that God was inviting Gentiles into the people of God. But they still thought of it as a basically as a Jewish thing. And then Paul is saved. And Paul is commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he goes out on his missionary journey, and, and it's interesting to read in Acts how he did it. He would go to a city, and he would find the synagogue, and he would start preaching Jesus until some in the synagogue were saved, 
and the rest were hardened. Now, in that synagogue would have been not only Jewish people, but God-fearing Gentiles. And so they go and they sit in their second-class seating away from all the pure people, and they, they sit down and they hear, and they hear about this Jesus who now makes the law of Moses no longer in effect. He's fulfilled it. And all the covenant signs of the law of Moses have been transferred to other covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper instead of circumcision and the Passover. And they're like, you mean we get to worship God without being circumcised and without keeping kosher? We can still have our pork uh, sandwiches and our, and our shrimp? And they're like, yep. And they're oh, what a deal. And they're excited and they receive the gospel with great joy. But it's not long before the Jews, in the, in the, at least some of the Jews in the synagogue, reject Jesus. And they stir up trouble for Paul and they throw him out of the synagogue. And so Paul takes his little group of Jewish converts and his group of Gentile converts and that's the church in whatever town they're in. And then they start sharing the gospel with their friends and neighbors around them. In the book of, uh, in the book of Acts, it says when Paul went to Corinth and they threw him out of the, out of the synagogue, he set up literally right next door in the household of a guy. So can you imagine going to synagogue on Saturday and there's all the Christians over there going, hi, you know, talk about awkward, right? Because Paul just split their church. And so that's, what, that's how he did it. But as time went on, more and more of the Jews became hardened and more and more of the Gentiles received Christ. And it became clearer and clearer that the Jews were by and large rejecting Jesus while the Gentiles were embracing him in larger numbers and, and this was hard. It was hard for Paul. This Ephesian church was overwhelmingly Gentile. And in Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, in him we also obtained an inheritance. That's the same inheritance for everyone. But in Ephesians 1.12, Paul speaks about we who first trusted in Christ. And then he contrasts it with you also trusted in Christ in verse 13. And when you look carefully at the context, it becomes obvious that the we who first trusted in Christ refers to the Jews who believed savingly on Jesus. And the you who also trusted group refers primarily to the Gentiles who later on came to saving faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul is setting the stage for what he's going to say in Ephesians 3.6 that the elect Gentiles have become in Christ fellow heirs and partakers of the same promise as the elect from the Jewish people. And there is now not two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles, whom God is dealing with or not dealing with. There is one kind of people in the world, the elect of God, spiritual Israel. There's one people of God. And he talks about the dividing wall in another place. He talks about the dividing wall has fallen. You know what that probably refers to? In the temple in Jerusalem, there, was, there were these courts as you went towards the center of the temple. And the outer one was called the court of the Gentiles. That was where the Gentiles could go and pray. And then there was a wall. And there were signs on that wall in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that said, if you are uncircumcised and you pass this point, your blood be on your own head. They couldn't go past that point. That was the court of the men, and then, or the court of the women, and then there was the court of the men, and then there was the, the priest's court, and only the priests could go in there. And it got more exclusive the closer you got to the Holy of Holies until only one person could go in there and only once a year. 
That was the high priest. And what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, that wall has been broken down. There is no more, this is for you and this is for us. It's just one people of God. Spiritual Israel. To be in Christ is to transcend every single barrier that rises between human beings. Every single barrier. Economic class, race, gender, all those barriers are torn down in Christ. And if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, what we share completely overwhelms what makes us different. But here's the, here's the funny thing. In the world, when we want everybody to, be, uh, to get along, we try and minimize differences. In Jesus, we celebrate the differences. Because we recognize that God made you different than he made me, and that's okay, that's wonderful. And, and so, the place in scripture where Paul meditates most fully on this mystery of the Jews and how they're rejecting Jesus and what God is up to there. Here's this Jesus, this, this people from whom the promised Messiah arose and, and they're rejecting that Messiah. And the Gentiles who were never seeking a Messiah have been found by him. And the place where Paul talks about that the most is not in the book of Ephesians, it's in the book of Romans and particularly in chapters nine through 11. And I would encourage you to, to read that for your homework. We're obviously not gonna read all of that today, but it's, it's well worth reading. But let me give you a thumbnail sketch of the passage and then we'll look closer at the little, uh, one little part and then we'll be done for today. Paul starts off in Romans 9 by lamenting the fact that the Jews are rejecting Christ on the whole. And he even goes so far as to say that he himself would rather that he be damned. I, go to, I would go to hell. I would think it worth it to go to hell, said Paul, if that would lead to the salvation of the Jewish people as a whole. And so he has anguish in his heart. It's not that he's, let me, let me put it this way. Paul recognized that God's purposes were being worked out in this and that God's word had not and could not fail. But Paul was anguished about what God was doing. He was anguished at the decrees of God. But he also knew what it was to submit to the word of God and the decrees of God humbly. You don't have to like everything that this book tells you is true. You don't have to like everything that this book tells you to do. But you do have to believe it and you do have to obey it if you want to be found faithful. This isn't a salad bar, you know, where you can go, oh, I like the croutons, but I don't like the beets. Nobody likes the beets. Why do they even put those on salad bars? They're gross, right? No, no, it's, you don't pick and choose. The book says what it says. And Paul was like, this is hard for me. I don't like what God is doing. It causes me grief and pain. I love my people. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. I am super Jew. And I love my people. And he's anguished about it, but he recognizes that God is at work and he recognizes that God has a purpose. And what is that purpose? Paul recognizes that God has a purpose at work, which is the elect of the Jewish people who will come to Christ and be saved. 
And he says the rest will be hardened. And they'll go on their way. And they'll reject Christ. And they'll reject Christ by being religious. They'll do it while they try and preserve, uh, uh, to pursue a righteousness of their own through the law of Moses while rejecting Christ. And, and that can never be attained. That righteousness by obeying the law is impossible. It was possible for Adam. It's been impossible ever since. And they're still trying to do it. They're rejecting a righteousness from God that comes by faith, as Paul defines it in Romans 1. And they're trying to work a righteousness of their own by the law. And they're very, very serious about it. They're very zealous. You look at the Taliban today, that's what many very, very observant Jews were like. They were just kind of gonzo for, this, for their religious righteousness. And so Paul then opens up chapter 11 with a question. And he says, has God rejected his people? By no means, he says. By no means has God rejected his people. But then he clarifies who God says are actually his people. It's the elect who are his people. The elect of the Jews, and now through Christ, the elect of the Gentiles. And God will never, ever reject his elect. But in the plan and purposes of God, there is more. There's something going to happen in the future. The rejection of Jesus by the majority of the Jews facilitated the gospel going to the Gentiles. If, if, if Paul had gone to those synagogues and everybody said, great, Jesus, and they all embraced him, then that would have been the end of it. But Gentiles got saved, and, and they were cast out, and it became apparent that this was something different, and, and, and all these wonderful things happened. So the rejection of Christ by the Jews facilitated the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Paul hints at a day in the future when the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in, he says, when large numbers of Jewish people will turn to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with a Jewish person. And if you've ever tried that, you'll know that there's a, often a very, very deep resistance to Christ, an antipathy towards him. And it's often chalked up to, well, the history of anti-Semitism and blah, 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 blah. But it, it's more than that. It's more than a response to historic anti-Semitism. It's spiritual. So let me, just, let me just close with a true story. When I, when I moved to Sturgis, um, we were poor. Like, we qualified for welfare poor. And, uh, and, and so one of the things that I had done was that a guy that I'd worked for in Cincinnati had this little business selling these lenses that let you look up at the traffic light. You're trying to do this, and it lets you do that without straining your neck. And I said, well, let me take that over, and, and I'll just fulfill those orders and send them out, and you can pay me, you know, like a 30% of whatever the sales are that month. And he said, that's fine. And so that was how I, I kept my motorcycle money running. And, and so I would go in, you know, twice a month, and I would run all these credit cards by hand, type the numbers in, and put the thing in an envelope and send it out, and, uh, and then do customer service. And I had this one guy 
I charged $4.95 for shipping and handling. And shipping and handling meant I put it in an envelope and I sent it to you. Okay? And this, this one guy, was, he, his name was David Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. And he, started, he, he, he emailed me and he said, what a ripoff, $4.95 to put it in an envelope. I was like, well, you know, we've got to make our money somewhere. $4.95 is not just for the envelope. It's for the fact that I have to run all this by hand and it takes me about, you know, five or six minutes and I only get 30%. And he was like, oh my gosh, an honest man. And we started talking. And, and he asked about me and I said, well, this is, you know, just my part-time gig. I'm a minister in South Dakota. And he said, oh, I'm Jewish. And we started talking some more. And, and, uh, and, and at some point it became apparent that he was curious. He was interested. So I set out to evangelize this guy. Now his last name was Sachs. Think about the big important places in New York, the big important institutions that carry the name Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. Is that guy, that family, okay? Very Jewish but not observant, not religious, but Jewish. And so I, I said, all right, I'm gonna, just for a challenge, I said, I'm gonna evangelize this guy and I'm only gonna use the Old Testament to do it. And we had this two and a half hour conversation one Saturday. I was down in the basement and my wife kind of could hear the whole thing. And she was like, wow. I mean, she, could, she just heard snippets like when I you know, raised my voice. And I, and I just went through the Old Testament and I went through his book and I was like, and this is where it points to Jesus. And this is where you, know, you and, your, and your interpretation are right, but it's not complete. And here's where it's like, okay, well, who is this? And I took him through, through the, the place in, in, in uh, Joshua where Joshua falls at the feet of the captain of the host of the army of the Lord and worships him. And I said, that wasn't an angel. Who could that be? And I took him to Daniel, and the one who sat on the throne, and then one like the Son of Man came to him. And, and, and he was given dominion and authority and power. And, and, I, and I went through Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And he kept going, how are you doing this? You sound like my rabbi. And I was just, I was just, oh, come on, Jesus. And finally at the end of it, I said, all right, David. What do you believe? And he said, I believe Jesus was the Messiah. And I said, Messiah, son of David, earthly king, or Messiah, God, the son of God? And he said, God, the son of God. You've convinced me. And I said, will you turn to Jesus? And he said, Brian, I'm Jewish. And if I did that, my family would disown me, and I'd lose everything. I said, all right, David. This is where our conversation basically ends. We can be friends, and I look forward to conversing with you, and we did after that. But he'd made it clear. He couldn't, as a Jew, receive Jesus without losing everything he thought was important. That wasn't a financial battle. That wasn't a sociological battle. That's a spiritual battle. And so far as I know, he's never come to Christ. I sent him a Bible. He has the emails. I shared the gospel clearly. He can do what he wants with it. But at that point, when we last talked, he's lost. There will come a day and maybe we'll be alive to see it when that hostility will disappear. When the Jews will come to Jesus 
in great numbers. And when that day happens, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Father, we ask this morning that you would seal these things upon our hearts, that where I have spoken what is true, that it would be caused to be burned onto the hearts of your people, that it would be believed and embraced even over against our objections, but someday, Lord, that your truth would just be beloved because it's your truth. And if I have said anything untruthful or unhelpful, I pray that you would cause it to be forgotten and that you would forgive me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.